but it's Memorial Day. Um, so much of Memorial Day is about looking in the rearview mirror. It's about looking in the rearview mi- mirror as we continue to pers- continue to pursue ahead. And um, we remember those who have given their lives, who have uh, sacrificed years of time, as Larry mentioned, uh, for the families, for the men, for the women, and so grateful to be able to be here and here in this theater and doing what we're doing. Uh, aren't you grateful for that? Just so thrilled about that. Thank you for uh, that gift from the Lord, really. Well, today in our time, uh, just is so fitting. I didn't plan it this way, but it just works out. And so we're moving through acts that uh, we're going to, in essence, uh, take a look in the rearview mirror. Um, we're actually going to be taking a look in the rearview mirror on one who stood on enemy ground, if you will. And in fact, stood strong to the place where he literally gave his life for the fame and the name of Christ. Um, it's a stunning story. What's interesting too about this man is we know almost virtually nothing about his life, but we know much about his death. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We're going to be covering Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7 today. This is, I think, the longest text of scripture I've ever covered on a Sunday. So here we go. Let her roll. Let your engines roar. Acts chapter 6, we're going to meet a man named Stephen. Stephen is one of the men, one of the individuals in history who uh, gave his life for something far bigger than himself. And so how fitting is this on a Memorial Day? We're going to be able to save our time with Stephen. Let me set the stage if you're new or visiting with us. Um, Jesus Christ has come. He's lived. He's been crucified on the cross. He's risen from the dead. And in Acts chapter 1, we find Christ shortly before his ascension. He's talking with his, with his peeps, with his people. He's uh, talking with 120 of them, and he gives them God's thing. Uh, God has a thing, and that thing is a to the ends of the world thing. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he lays that out, and he gives them this life call, and then he ascends, and then the, all of them are told to wait, and so they wait. Uh, Acts chapter 2 comes along, and the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, in a miraculous way, descends down on the 120, permanently indwelling them, equipping them, empowering them to be able to do God's call, God's thing from Acts chapter 1. We then uh, covered through Acts chapter 4 and 5, and we see that uh, uh, the name is being proclaimed. Acts chapter 3, I missed that. Peter is front and center, and he's proclaiming the name of Christ. And we see in Acts chapter 3, thousands of people are coming to Christ. And by the way, don't think of Christ's life and what we're talking about right now as a grand bit of distance. We're only talking weeks. We're really only talking a couple months of time between those two. And in a couple months of time, thousands of people, thousands of Jews in Jerusalem are coming to faith in Christ. Then we get into Acts chapter 4 and 5. We continue to see the name being proclaimed. It's proclaimed with boldness and togetherness and in the fear of the Lord and in the joy of the Lord. And the church is booming in Jerusalem. Literally at this time, 
there are over 20,000 people who have come to Christ within months. I am so glad to be the pastor here and not in that moment. 20,000 plus people in months. And these are all people who are really are new to Christ. But it's a magnificent, magnificent time that's happening. But one of the interesting things that comes along is called a problem. A problem shows up in the church. Let's pick up there, Acts chapter one, chapter six, verse one. It says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, in other words, boom, baby, it's just growing and growing. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Problem. And it's a real reason. Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Let me set a little context here. The Hellenists. The Hellenists were Jews who were scattered or had, not really scattered, but had gone out prior to this. And they were literally living kind of in Gentile countries. Uh, the Hellenists did not speak Hebrew Aramaic. They, they spoke Greek. Uh, they lived in a Greek culture. They spoke a Greek language. And in fact, when they read their Old Testament, they read the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, at the day, any Hellenist by any Jew was kind of viewed as a second-class citizen. But here's what's part of interesting about this. We already find out in the very beginning of the church, sometimes people think, you know, like back in the beginning of the church was like the best time ever in the church. And I want to say this, guess what? There was racism in the very beginning in the church. And that's what's happening here. And so some of those widows who were Hellenists that were Greek Jews, viewed by many as second-class citizens, were getting overlooked uh, at the time of being cared for. And would we all not agree that's not a good thing to have happen? We want to care for them. And so the, the Hellenists, the, those that were kind of on their side, uh, came to the leadership and in essence said, we've got a problem here. And they did. Let's see what happens with the problem. Oh, by the way, are you surprised if problems show up in God's family? Why is that? Why are we surprised when there's problems in God's church with his people? I mean, the fact of the matter is we're all sinners, true? We're all sinners, but a follower of Christ is someone who's redeemed in Christ, but yet we still sin. And, but why are we surprised when there's problems in the church? In fact, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, this most unusual statement, the apostle Paul saying to the Corinthian church, and they had a lot of issues going on. He says this, there must be factions among you. What? Paul is actually saying there must be factions, there must be schisms, there must be problems among you. That's what he says. Uh, you can look it up, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There must be factions among you. Why? In order that those who are genuine in Christ may be known. Hey, you know, in problems of life, that's when our real theology shows out. It's easy to say that God is sovereign in control and is awesome when life is going along really well. But then when life really goes downhill for us, then how do we respond to that? That's when we know what our theology really is. So this is what's happening at the time. I'll just say this. Hey, when problems happen among God's people, it's an opportunity to be able to display God's glory, even in problems. Oh, by the way, when problems come up in a church family, it's also an opportunity for Satan to bring in divisiveness. But let's be a place that solves problems for God's glory. Problems are gonna happen in church and they're gonna happen here. Acts chapter six, 
Let's keep reading. Verse two. And so what do they do about it? The 12, the apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. In other words, this really is a problem and we do need to take care of it. But right now, uh, we need some other people to help. This isn't a we're awesome, you're not, so find some low people. This is the way God's family is supposed to work in caring for these things. Verse three, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who will, be, who will appoint, uh, we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, it's interesting for me, and I don't know about you, from my background, whenever you come to the beginning of Acts chapter 6, you all of a sudden, the pastor uh, goes into a discussion about leadership structure in the church. This begins a time where you start talking about how it should be set up and how things should flow out. I just want to ask this question. Why is Luke including this right at the moment? Let's step back and ask the question. Why is Luke writing what he's writing here? There's a problem. Why is he putting that down? What is his purpose? What's the authorial intent as the story moves on? Is it primarily a text to be able to start telling us how to solve problems in the church? No, that's not why it's there. But I will tell you practically, it is interesting to realize that there are gonna be problems in the church. There are gonna be problems among God's people. God's people are to step up and to solve problems for God's glory. But that's not Luke's ultimate point. Was Luke's primary purpose to teach church leadership? What was this all of a sudden the place to be able to lay out? This is how things should happen. By the way, I have a question for you. Is the title deacon in there anywhere? I have a question. It's really not that hard to answer. Is the title deacon in there anywhere? No, it's not. It's in the verb, diakonos. But I just want to say this. This is not a church structure passage. That is not Luke's primary point. Luke, in essence, is saying, listen, a problem came up and the apostles were willing enough to be able to pass authority off to get other people. By the way, there's a practical application out of that. A leadership needs to be able to delegate authority off to be able to bring other people. Here's another one as well. Uh, as the church grows, the church structure needs to be willing to change. But this is not a passage that's here primarily for the purpose of leadership structure. So Doug, why is it here? Here's the answer to that. Uh, to provide a contextual introduction to a person. Why is all this here? All of this is here by Luke's account to start introducing you to somebody. Uh, this is here so that all of a sudden, in just a moment, we're going to see the name Stephen. You are now going to understand who Stephen is. Who is Stephen? Well, Stephen, uh, we're virtually certain that he was a Hellenistic Jew. That's important because of the problem that was happening at time. And so they pulse one of these men out is a Hellenistic Jew who understands the Hellenistic widows and knows their situation. So he, that, that's who he is. Uh, we have no idea how he came to Christ. We don't know if he was part of the 120. We don't know if he came to Christ in the last week or a couple months. We have no idea. We do know that he was highly regarded because he was picked out to be uh, by the other followers of Christ. And in the text, look at this. Let me pick up at verse five. And what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose who? A man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. You see, if Luke all of a sudden would have started jumping right up into verse eight and started telling about Stephen, you and I would have no idea who this man is. But these first seven verses are here for a contextual introduction to introduce you to a very important man. And his man is, this man is Stephen. Stephen is a Hellenistic Jew. He's 
has high reputation among the believers. And look at that text. He's full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Full of. That means to be controlled by. Uh, Stephen is this man that is controlled by faith in God. He sees God big enough. He trusts God big enough that that's one of the characteristics about him. If you want to think about a man who is faithful to the Lord, who saw God big, who trusted in God with his life, guess who was one of the men? Stephen's one of the men that we would think of. That's what was happening in the time. But not only that, not only was it controlled by faith, but I love this statement. He's controlled by the Holy Spirit, which is so important in light of the context of the earlier chapters. He's a man who's submissive to the power and the working of the Spirit of God in his life. In other words, life wasn't about Stephen. Life was about concentrating on what God wanted him to do. Stephen lived life like this. It's not about my career. It's not about my hobbies. It's not about my lusts. It's not about my interests. It's not about my happiness. It's not about my laziness. But for Stephen, life was about being controlled by faith in a great big God and being submissive. God, whatever you want me to do, I'm in. Hey, men, let's be that. Let's be that kind of a man. Man, I want to tell you, men, that's the kind of man that sticks out in our world today. A man full of faith, controlled by faith. God is big enough that even though I don't get the moment, he does. And I know that I'm equipped and empowered by the spirit of God to do a work through me. And it's not about me. It's all about the Lord. Man, I want to tell you, this is a studly man for God. That's what Stephen is. There's been a problem in the church. They acknowledge the problem. The apostles uh, realize they can't be pulled away from prayer and the ministry of the word. So they start getting other people around for mutual ministry together. The apostles lay hands and pray on these seven men. Oh yeah, because there's not just Stephen, but look at the text. There's also Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor. There you go, Nick. There's a new name for you. Nicanor and Tuna. <laughs> not Tuna. <laughs> Timon and, and, and Parmenas and La, uh, oh, these other guys. Okay, you got it? But the point of this is to bring us to a man and introduce you to a man named Stephen, all right? Awesome things are happening in the church in Jerusalem. Awesome things. But before we start reading, let me just remind us of this. What about everywhere else on the planet? So far as we've been studying through Acts, it's like, that is so cool what's happening to these guys. And it's so cool what's happening in Jerusalem. But what about the rest of the world? And if I remember correctly, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is talking about to Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria. They haven't gone to Judea and Samaria yet, have they? Have they? No. Guess what? God in his sovereignty is going to bring a man to the plate to get the Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world thing happening. Know this, as we look in the rearview mirror and are grateful for men and women who have fought in our country for our freedom today, as followers of Christ, you look in the mirror and we need to be men and women who are thankful for Stephen because God used Stephen as a bridge so that you and I could get the message out to us. Okay, let's keep going. Verse seven, 
And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. By the way, these aren't the Sanhedrin priests. These aren't the chief priests, but this is most likely some of the 8,000 plus or minus priests that served in the temple area. By the way, rock that one on God. God is just having a huge impact. Verse 8, and Stephen, here's the flow from now on. And Stephen full of grace and power. So Stephen is a man controlled by faith, controlled by the spirit and full of grace. That's cool. And full of power. What a man. And Stephen full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. That was unusual because so far in Acts, everything we've seen, all the signs and the wonders that have been done have been done by the apostles. This is the first time that we see anybody else other than the apostles doing signs and wonders. And yet Stephen is, verse nine, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, uh, the freedmen, they were descendants of the Jews who had previously been in bondage, but won their freedom from Rome. So there's the freedmen and the Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia. All these people, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. The word for disputed here is not that they had a, a drag out fight. It was actually a formal debate. So there's a formal debate takes place, verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he, Stephen, was speaking. One against all these guys and Stephen's taking them down by God's power in them. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him, brought him before the council. Got it? So they've brought Stephen before the Sanhedrin, before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. By the way, doesn't that sound familiar? Haven't we been to this story before? I mean, this is the exact same story, by the way, in front of the exact same leaders. These are the same leaders who heard and had set up Christ for crucifixion. These are the same leaders who had just set up the apostles and had the living life almost beat out of them. And now these same leaders are setting up Stephen and are having after him. Verse 14, for we had heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Key word there, the customs that Moses delivered to us. Verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. This is like Moses coming off of Mount Sinai. And here's Stephen. By the way, uh, I think it's interesting to consider, and I have no idea on this, but did Stephen know that something cool was going on with his face? Okay, I would like for everybody right at this moment to look at your face. Take a look. Uh, it's kind of hard, isn't it? Without a mirror, you can't see your face. I don't know, but I'm literally, I wonder, did Stephen know something God awesome was going on with his face? Uh, it may have been that God was doing something through him, honestly, to kind of keep him humble, but yet to be a testimony before these men here. But something awesome is even going on physically with him at this moment. Chapter seven, verse one, and the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. Stephen takes the opportunity to the vertical. 
the God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham. Okay, I'm about to read through all, almost all of chapter seven, kind of in a continuous run here. And I wanna set a couple things out for you as we go through this that I think are really important to understand what's so cool about what happens here. First of all, Stephen goes through the process and he connects with the Sanhedrin. And you're going to see here as we go through with this, what he does is he goes back and he connects with them by tying out and pulling out, reciting out the entire history of Israel with key figures. Uh, these men had tied their relationship with God based upon Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. And so what does Stephen do? Uh, you can take a look on your own. Verse two, we've already touched on Abraham. Then in verse eight, he touches on Isaac and Jacob, then nine, Joseph, then 20, Moses, then 45, Joshua and David, and then 47, Solomon. He is gonna connect with these men. And in fact, if you read this, there's an aspect of this. If you are one of the Sanhedrin sitting there, you're like, I'm with you, man. Preach it, bro. Go, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there. But there's another part that's happening here that really doesn't show till the very end. Because not only does he connect with these men, but he connects these men. He connects these men, not with being like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he connects them actually with being like those individuals in history, those forefathers in history that were always in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David's face, opposing God. He connects with them and he connects them. He connects with them by reciting Israel's history and he connects them by inciting them. Let's read. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which are, you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. By the way, remember, this isn't reading strictly. He's speaking this before these people. Verse 6. And so as he speaks, he goes on, and God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. He's talking about the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs and the Sanhedrin, this is in the parentheses, and the Sanhedrin are sitting there going, we're with you, bro. Verse nine, and the patriarchs jealous of Joseph. Okay, hear me. This is the first connecting them to the wrong bad guys. The forefathers, those patriarchs who were jealous of Joseph, he's connecting them to them. 
the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. That's cool. And rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who had made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout uh, all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard uh, that there was grain in Egypt, he went out to our fathers on their first visit. He sent out our fathers on the first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died. And he had our fathers. He and our fathers, and they were uh, carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver in the sons of Hamar and Shechem. Sanhedrin. But as the, time for prom, uh, as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people un- increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in the father's house, in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians And he was mighty in words and deeds. And the Sanhedrin are going, yes, you're right, you're right. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptians. This is next verse 25 is really important when you understand the story of Moses. Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. I think when Moses was uh, in the process, he was stunned that the Hebrews did not respond to what he was seeking to do, but they did not understand. Verse 26, and on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptians yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Verse 30. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now I come, I send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, By the way, are are you seeing the rejection statements? There are people throughout history and all of working with God's prophets and with God's key leaders of time. Uh, Each time here, uh, Stephen is going through and saying, not only were there followers of Yahweh, but there were ones who fussed against Yahweh all through history. 
And here in a little bit, he's going to attach them to them. This Moses, whom they rejected, verse 35, saying, who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you in exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, the tabernacle, just as he had spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they were uh, dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people. Let me just pause here. I realize this is just a tremendous amount of reading. But Stephen is speaking them. He's standing in front of the Sanhedrin. He's standing in front of the leaders, the exact same leaders who judged and crucified Christ, who judged and beat the living life out of the apostles just recently. He's standing before the very ones that he knows they could take his life like that because they already have been over all their history. And in all of this, he recites history. Hey, let me tell you about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and, and David and Moses and Joshua. And they're like, yeah, that's what we're all about. And yet packed within it all is these individuals in Israel over history. There were these groups of people who continually were basically just putting their fist to God and say, do it my way. And in this last little section here, all of a sudden, this man, Stephen, turns this on and he indicts and incites everyone who holds his life in their hands. Listen to what he says. After laying out all the history, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. 
Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. I want to tell you, friends, this guy is a stud for Christ. We don't know much at all about his life. But we know a good bit about this one incident. And he lays it all on the line. I wonder what I would have done. What would you have done? Would we have been men and women and teens enough to stand and in the whole setting of it all, to rightly declare the fame and the name of Christ and what God has done over history, and yet respectfully and yet truth with grace to be able to declare the reality of what has happened. I think this is a man controlled by faith, controlled by the spirit of God, who got brought in for a moment of time to be able to say to the leadership, I'm done with you. This has been going on for history and I am now officially done. You have been playing the game so long you don't even know what the game is anymore. These are hard words. Stephen is laying out here that God has revealed himself over history again and again and again and again. And yet in God revealing himself throughout history, he has been rejected again and again and again and again. Men's rituals had come in the place of relationship with God. Men's traditions had taken the place of God's own very own truth. Rituals and traditions over relationship and God's very own truth. I have to ask the question, might that be you? I go to church. I grew up going to church. I grew up in a Christian home. I tithe. I read the good book. I believe there's a God. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross. I walked the aisle. I was baptized. I've served. I've been on a missions trip. Comparatively, I'm morally in a better place than most people I know. But yet has rituals and tradition taken place of real relationship and truth. What's the basis for your having relationship with God? Seriously. These leadership had conned themselves into years and years and years that they were at a good place with God. And yet they weren't. We need to see the reality of our total inability, our total sinful depravity before God. If you don't understand sin, you don't understand God's grace. 
the fact of the matter is, we are all greatly depraved sinners before a holy, perfect God. And only by the work of Christ on the cross and staking it in the ground with him and claiming that his work on the cross out of grace paid the price for my sinfulness and I am a child of God and I want to live in submission and obedience to him for all of God's glory and the fruit shows it. I just want to honestly, lovingly, Yet right on the table, ask the question, what is the basis for your relationship with the God of the universe? Stephen gave heavy words. And why don't these men respond like Acts chapter two, verse 37, where the hearers were cut to the heart and they said, you're right and repented and received the full grace that God offers. Why don't they do that? They had the opportunity right here, but instead look what happens. Verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were unglued and they ground their teeth at him. I don't know what that meant. I guess it's like a way to describe how honked off these guys are, how hard they are the insult that he would have said that to them and they ground their teeth in him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, listen to this, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened. I mean, right in this room where they're meeting, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They charged at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Pause. I cannot even begin to fathom a stoning. Here is a man who had just boldly proclaimed the great name of Jesus Christ. And they haul him out into the street. And they start chucking rocks at him. I can't even fathom that, friends. And the witnesses laid down their garments, the ones who were there, they laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named what? If you're new to the Bible, Saul becomes the apostle Paul. And right here, Saul was cheerleading this stoning on. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And a rock hits him in the head. And falling to his knees, he cries out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Boy, that sounds familiar. And when he had said this, my three favorite words out of this whole text, he fell asleep. What's your view of death? Uh, by the way, 
Stephen didn't say that. Luke, in writing about it, this is the theology of the reality. He fell asleep. I mean, how confident is that? I mean, how marvelous is that? It is coming to a point of death. It's not dead and done. It's falling asleep. It's uh, the person who knows Christ as their savior. It's not with the Lord forever. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to die that way. But he fell asleep. Oh, such hope. We don't know much about his life, but we know a lot about his death. One more verse. Chapter eight, verse one. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of what? Acts chapter one, verse eight is happening now. Listen, Stephen is a bridge. Stephen is a bridge between, between Peter and between Paul. Uh, Peter has been at the forefront. Paul is at the horizon. And God in his sovereignty uses Stephen to bridge the gap between these two men that the Lord is going to use in massive ways. And he's a bridge in that reality, of, but he's also a bridge to the ends of the world because it's because of what happened with Stephen that the church in Jerusalem, the 20,000 plus people started getting persecuted, kicked out, booted out. Can you imagine your family being booted out? And they were booted out, pushed out. Why? Because God wanted his people out into Judea and Samaria, just like he said he wanted them in Acts chapter one, verse eight. And he used Stephen and his sovereignty to get the action happening. I'm just telling you, God is so awesome. He is so cool. And yet the, the, the hardness of life through all of that. What a man. No, 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 no. What a God. What a God. Hey, just as we wrap it, four little questions. Hopefully one of these will spur your thinking on from this text. Four application questions after uh, looking in the rearview mirror here with Stephen. Number one, do I live as a bridge? Do you live as a bridge? If you know Christ is your savior, you've been called to do God's thing. And God's thing is stated in Acts chapter one, verse eight, and Matthew 20, 19 to 20 is to be someone who's reaching the world. You've been equipped to do that thing with the permanent dwelling of the spirit of God in your life. You and I are to be bridges proclaiming the fame in the name of Christ to the world. Are, are you doing that? Are you engaged with that? Listen, that's not just a, do you want to? That's a, you are called to. Secondly, do I live life knowing that God rules history? Hey, God rules history. God rules not only the history of the past, but God rules the history of the future. And I want for those of you to know who look at your past and are struggling with past issues, let me let you know this. God is so big, so marvelous, so saving, so redeeming that you are not a victim of your past. In Christ, you can be a victor of your past. He rules history. Not only does God rule history of the past, but God rules history of the future. Listen, he knows he's going to be present, still vote, but he knows he knows what's going to be happening. It's a crazy world is right now, isn't it? Crazy, crazy, crazy. But guess what? He's not concerned. 
He's got it all figured out. He's taking it right where he wants to it. And listen, we're in it for the ride to give him glory through it. Know this, God rules history. A third, do I understand that the Bible indicts me to redeem me? The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if we didn't know that fact, we wouldn't know the, the reality and the extent of the fact that the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible says that when we receive Christ, that we are a new creation in Christ. Woo! I need to understand that I'm a sinner so that I can understand that I can be redeemed. The Bible indicts me, uh, not just to indict me, but in order to redeem me. Have you been redeemed in Christ? And lastly, do I understand that God never wastes the blood of his saints? On Memorial Day, we reflect in the rearview mirror and we go, God, thank you for those who have given their lives. And because we get to bear the fruit of what they've given today, guess what? All of God's saints who have been martyred, God never wastes their blood either. In fact, let me kind of encapsulate it this way. Saul, who becomes Paul, saw Stephen's death. I don't know. But I wonder how often the apostle Paul while in jail or while proclaiming the name of Christ, in his mind reflected back on the days when he saw a man named Stephen die for the fame and the name of Christ. And in remembering that, how many times Paul wondered, I can continue on and sprint to the finish line like Stephen did. And the same for you and I. Hey, let's live it deep. And then let's fall asleep. God, I want to thank you so much for your kindness, your goodness, your holiness, your awesomeness. Lord, as time goes on, I personally, I'm just seeing more and more how little I see you how much I have to learn about who you are. I'm not even close to comprehending the magnificence of you. And yet, oh Lord, it's, it's passages like this. It's stories of people's lives who truly lived at a time and lived in such a way that they set out there kind of a course for us, an example for us to, to see how to connect our theology into real living. And Lord, I would pray that we would be men and women and teens who see you so big that at school, that before friends, that before family, that before coworkers, that we would graciously stand for the beautiful name of Christ. Lord God, would you just help us to understand you more and see you more, be awed by you more, controlled by you more. Lord, this was a lot of text today. 
And this is a lot of going at it today. Would you use it to allow us to see the marvelous grace of you? Lord, if there's anyone in here this morning who, like the Sanhedrin, who, like the leadership of their day, are banking their relationship off of some kind of systematic, mathematical, relational kind of game, pray you would just encourage them to think about where they're really at. Lord, I pray for those of us who know you as our Savior, that this would be the kind of passage that calls us to the table. Lord of history, Lord of the future, Use us. Use us for your glory, for the fame of your name.